So our first reading is by the poet Robert Hayden. Those winter Sundays. Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue, black, cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold, splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Leaning in. Sometimes in the middle of a crowded store on a Saturday afternoon, my husband will rest his hand on my neck or on the soft flesh belted at my waist and pull me to him. I understand his question. Why are we so fortunate when all around us friends are falling prey to divorce and illness? It seems intemperate to celebrate in a way more conspicuous. So we just stand there, leaning into one another, until that moment of sheer blessedness dissolves and our skin, which has been touching, cools and relents, settling back into our separate skeletons as we head towards housewares to resume our errands. Live Oaks, New Orleans, by Jennifer Meyer. They square off along Napoleon Avenue, opposing armies of dark women, leaning out so far their branches meet at the top, like hands grabbing fistfuls of tangled hair. And some of them are old, with the thick, scarred trunks of Storyville madams, and roots so strong their suck heaves up the sidewalk like so many broken saltines. And some are young, with the straight-backed bodies of girls who dream of horses and the brown arms of neighborhood boys. But underground, the red roots grow together, fuse in a living circuitry, spun deep and stronger than the whims of emperors, as if they've known all along that earth the right place for love, as though, planted in battle lines, they incline toward the circle and hold it open vaulted and welcoming. Eleven years ago, I went on the worst date of my life. It was bad for a whole variety of reasons. We were not a good match. We struggled and failed throughout the evening to discover one common interest. We could not agree on books or movies or music. My date had a brand new tattoo that he was very proud of. And it was a zombie clown being chainsawed in half on his bicep. Uh, I have a weak stomach, so I got a little queasy just looking at it. 
he had been so hurt by the religious community in which he was raised that he would not go to churches even to participate in blood drives. And at that point, I hadn't yet figured out that I was headed to ministry, but I was a church mouse. I was attend hours at ch- I would spend hours at church every Sunday, attending the early service, socializing in coffee hour, then going to the later service, and then going out to brunch with people from the church. The conversation came in fits and starts that evening. We were a poor match. And it was also a bad date because he seemed unfamiliar with the courtship rituals of our culture. (laughs) He asked me out for dinner at a pizza place and then said he wasn't hungry and didn't eat anything. (laughs) So as I ate my slices as he watched, which was awkward enough, he told me about how he only eats healthy food, (laughs) making me feel even more self-conscious. When I asked him about his favorite books, he listed exclusively self-help books on anger management, on relationships, on sexuality. And there's nothing wrong with these sorts of books. They can be great sources of wisdom and really make a difference in our lives, but it is very poor judgment to name them on a first date. (laughs) There was not a second date. So I've thought of this man a fair bit this week as I prepared to preach this sermon because I'm speaking about two books, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman and The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm that might fit in the self-help category at your local bookstore. They are both rooted in psychology and teach the skills we need to have better relationships. These books, The Five Love Languages especially, have been helpful to me in a variety of relationships, romantic and otherwise. The central premise of both of these texts is that love is a choice, a choice that requires hard work and sometimes sacrifice. It's liberating to have that named. Most of us know that love requires effort, but we often come to that lesson the hard way. The phrase falling in love almost makes it sound like love is an accident that we have no control over. And while attraction and infatuation might be beyond our control. What grows from there is not. The fairy tales we consume as storybooks and cartoon movies as children usually close with the wedding and the statement that they lived happily ever after. And perhaps they did, but those stories teach us that getting to the altar is the hard work and the adventure is over. And those of us in long-term committed relationships know that a wedding or other commitment ritual is just the beginning. All relationships, romantic relationships, family relationships, friendships, and the relationships we have with coworkers, neighbors, and fellow church members take work. We don't reach a milestone and then get to coast on happily ever after. To love well takes effort and practice. The art of loving explores types of love, including romantic love, parental love, brotherly love, self-love, and the love of God. And psychoanalyst Eric Fromm writes that overcoming our separateness is humanity's deepest need, and love is what allows us to do that. The challenge is that we must learn how to love well. He writes, 
The first step to take is to become aware that love is an art, just as living is an art. If we want to learn how to love, we must proceed in the same way we have to proceed if we want to learn any other art, say music, painting, carpentry, or the art of medicine or engineering. What are the necessary steps in learning any art? The process of learning an art can be divided conveniently into two parts. One, the mastery of the theory. The other, the mastery of the practice. If we want to learn the art of medicine, I must first know the facts about the human body and about various diseases. When I have all this theoretical knowledge, I should become a master of this art only after a great deal of practice until eventually the results of my theoretical knowledge and the results of my practice are blended into one, my intuition, the essence of the mastery of any art. Fromm continues, but aside from learning the theory and practice, there is a third factor necessary to becoming a master in any art. The mastery of the art must be a matter of ultimate concern. There must be nothing else in this world more important than the art. This holds true for music, for medicine, for carpentry, and for love. And maybe here lies the answer to the question of why people in our culture try so rarely to learn this art, in spite of their obvious failures. In spite of the deep-seated craving for love, almost everything is considered to be more important than love. Success, prestige, money, power. Almost all our energy is used for the learning of how to achieve these aims, and almost none to learn the art of loving. That is a powerful call to action. Can you imagine how different our world would be if people used even a fraction of the energy we use pursuing success, prestige, money, and power to pursue love? I think that world would be unrecognizable. Fromm asserts that the theory of love, the aspects common to all forms of love, are giving, care, responsibility, respect, and knowledge. He writes that the practice of love requires discipline, concentration, patience, supreme concern for practicing this art, and overcoming one's narcissism. What does that look like in practice? How do we, how do we learn to love better on this Valentine's Day? Gary Chapman, the author of The Five Love Languages, gives more concrete guidance. He is trained as an anthropologist and has done decades of marriage counseling and marriage seminars. In his work, he has come to the understanding that each of us has a primary love language. The five love languages are not Spanish, French, Portuguese, Romanian, and Italian. The five love languages are not romance languages. The five love languages are forms of affection that we most crave, the most effective and consistent ways we feel loved. Perhaps some of you are familiar with all of this already. The copy of the book that I read states that seven million copies have been sold. And if this is old news for you, please appreciate that this is new news for some of us gathered today. The five love languages are words of affirmation, quality time, gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. We all want all of these to greater or lesser extent, but Chapman insists that there is one, or rarely two, that is primary for us. There is one that we most deeply crave, one that we equate with real love. 
The first of the love languages is words of affirmation. Compliments, praise, encouraging words. Perhaps this is your love language. Perhaps you are like Mark Twain who once said, I can live for two months on a good compliment. (laughs) Perhaps having someone say, I noticed what you did and I really appreciate it, makes the task worthwhile. If that describes you, your primary love language is likely words of affirmation. Next is quality time. This can be vacations together, nightly family meals, or a 10-minute conversation without distraction with someone you care about. If, when you're with family, friends, or a romantic partner, what you're doing matters less than that you're doing it together, quality time might be your love language. The girl in our story today who asked her dad to spend time with her as her birthday present likely has quality time as her love language. The third love language is gifts. The modern celebration of Valentine's Day with its cards and flowers and chocolates and everything else might be a holiday thought up for people with gifts as their love language. These folks feel appreciated when they receive gifts. Not always huge gifts, but small thoughtful items like a card or even a beautiful leaf or stone that someone saw while they were out for a walk and thought that person would appreciate. If you have a shoebox full of precious things that people have given you over the years, perhaps gifts is your love language. For people whose love language is acts of service, their most romantic gesture they can imagine might be taking out the garbage, doing the laundry, or cleaning a fish tank at three in the morning. These people know they are loved when the people in their lives do things for them. This is the love language of the father in the Robert Hayden poem I read earlier. This is the love language of waking up early to light the fire, the love language of polishing someone's shoes. And the final love language is physical touch. In a romantic relationship, this is sex, but also all other touches, like the touch in the Sue Ellen Thompson poem, the husband resting his hand on his wife's neck or around her waist and pulling her close. It is sitting close together on a couch or putting an arm around someone. That physical closeness is what shows love to the person for whom physical touch is their primary love language. It's receiving hugs from family and friends or high fives from teammates. As I went through these descriptions, did one jump out at you? Did you think, that's me? If you're not sure and want to pursue this further, there is a self-test you can take either in the book or online at fivelovelanguages.com. And another helpful way to determine your love language is to think about what you complain about most. If you find yourself thinking to yourself, my boss never praises me, perhaps your love language is words of affirmation. If you wish your friends would spend more time with you, perhaps your love language is quality time. If you long for your spouse to do more chores, your love language might be acts of service. And if we know the love language of people we are in relationship with, we can better express our love, affection, and care for them. We can better show them how much we love them. I'll give you a scene from my marriage. My primary love language is acts of service. I feel loved when my husband Brian clears the snow from our driveway and tends to our son DeForest when he wakes up in the middle of the night. 
romantic, I know. Brian's love language is quality time. So he loves to spend time together, running errands, taking day trips, having a good conversation at the end of the day. Before we talked about our love languages, I would try to show him love in my native language, acts of service. I was following the golden rule, treating others as I would like to be treated. It didn't work very well. In the evenings, after our long days of work, I would wash dishes or do other chores, and he did not experience that as love. We had a conversation about this and learned about one another's love languages, so now I am trying to follow what is sometimes called the platinum rule, treating others how they would like to be treated. (laughs) There's a big difference. (laughs) It's about what this other person wants, not what I would want in their place. Those of us in relationship with someone with a different primary love language, and that is most of us, most of our relationships are with people who experience love differently than we do, need to become bilingual or trilingual or quadlingual or whatever, however you would say it for five. So I'm working to communicate with my husband through quality time, the love language he is most likely to understand. And he's making similar efforts with acts of service. And it has made a big difference in our marriage. And while the original Five Love Languages book is about improving marriages, this concept of love languages applies to other relationships in our lives as well. There are editions of the book for single people, for use in the workplace, and for improving relationships with children. And several years ago, a group of coworkers and I discussed our love languages. It improved our working relationships. With a coworker whose love language was words of affirmation, I became careful to tell him when I thought he did something well. After a coworker whose love language was gifts went above and beyond for me, I took him out for a blizzard at the Dairy Queen down the street, because I knew that was one of his favorite indulgences. Of course, not all of the love languages work as well in a work environment. Physical touch can be especially tricky. But this framework can help us to know how to show appreciation to the people in our lives in the way they are most likely to experience it as appreciation. I found The Five Love Languages and The Art of Loving both to be helpful and insightful books. But before you rush out to pick up your copy or place a hold at the library, I have some caveats. The Art of Loving was originally published in 1956 and reflects the prejudices of that era, especially in the field of psychoanalysis. There are passages about homosexuality, women, and gender differences in parenting that made me want to throw the book across the room. And Gary Chapman, the author of The Five Love Languages, is an evangelical Christian. So his understanding of marriage and divorce is different than what is most commonly believed among us in our liberal tradition. He has a complementarian view of marriage, which means that men and women play different roles in the household, that the man, man is the head of the household and the woman is charged with keeping the house and tending the children. He does not acknowledge same-sex marriages and committed relationships that are not marriages. So if you pick up these books, you're going to have to use that mental find and replace function that so many of us carry with us in the world of recognizing the words and stories and passages that that don't fit our worldview, 
and figuring out if there's a word that would work better or just throwing that whole section away. I think it's worth sorting through what is problematic to find what's valuable in these texts. So on this Valentine's Day, may we choose love as wonderful and as challenging as that choice is. May love be evident in our words, our touch, our time, our gifts, and our actions. May everyone in our lives and our world, romantic partners, family, friends, neighbors, and strangers, everyone know that they are worthy of love. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.